The term Renaissance man has become a dirty word. We used to elevate people whose multidisciplinary skills allowed them to excel in many different areas. It was a part of their myth. Oh, did you know that before he entered politics, Winston Churchill was a soldier, a writer, a painter, a historian? Wow, that's amazing. He's got my vote. But now the cultural carrots and sticks have changed. We don't want Renaissance men or Renaissance women, Renaissance people. We want specialists, hyper-skilled, hyper-focused on one thing. I think about the myth-making around someone like Kobe Bryant, whose untimely death was memorialized as if he was a modern-day Achilles. The legend we celebrated about him was his singular focus on basketball. Woke up at 3 a.m. every day to go practice. First one in, last one to leave. He was a killer, an assassin, Mamba mentality. We see this worship of specialty in all areas, academics, business, law, medicine. When someone needs some very specific task done, you need to market yourself as the person they call because you're the only one who can do it. Even someone like Elon Musk, who at times has been described as the Renaissance man of the 21st century, isn't really that. Despite being involved in all these different industries, there's really only one thing he's bringing to the table, efficiency. At least that was the case with Tesla and SpaceX. Maybe his more recent actions with Twitter could challenge the narrative. But the Musk example is important because I would argue it's efficiency that has killed the Renaissance man. A Renaissance man needs time to develop, to jump between workstations, but time isn't something we have. Things move too fast. And to keep up, society has transformed itself into something that resembles one of Henry Ford's assembly lines. So that even extremely difficult and complex jobs like brain surgery are treated like the guys who used to tighten lug nuts. Roll the patient in, roll the patient out, keep it moving. And now the term Renaissance man has been replaced. We would call them today a jack of all trades, master of none. But when we think of the great men and women of history, so many of them embody that Renaissance man spirit that we are actively destroying. What are some of the names that come to mind? Da Vinci, Isaac Newton, Benjamin Franklin, Marie Curie, and I would argue Melvin Van Peebles. There are few people in the history of the world that have had as great an impact on popular culture as Melvin Van Peebles. And yet, I imagine that many of you who are not hardcore cinephiles or scholars of black history have no idea who he really is. His story and the things he did to succeed on his own terms are legendary within certain circles. But this legend in some ways overshadows the true brilliance of Melvin as an artist and a human being. What I have found myself doing throughout this research process and encourage you all to do as well is to ask yourself at each step of this story, what would I do in this situation? The answer reveals the true magic and exceptionalism of Melvin's character. So join me 
as we explore the life and work of Melvin Van Peebles, the last Renaissance man. Here we go. Roll video. I think anybody creating something new must have an adventure. It's not cinema, it's something else. My advice to a young filmmaker is to make a movie every week. The whole bag of movies can be learned in about a day and a half. But suspense is essentially an emotional process. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta make films, you gotta make it, get a scene. Cinema for me is a world of when I dream. Welcome to Behind the Slate, everybody. I'm your host, Aaron Strand. Thank you so much for joining me today, wherever you are in the world. Before we start, I want to give a quick reminder that if you haven't done so already, take a few minutes to rate our show, maybe even leave a review. Those little comments really go a long way in helping this podcast grow. As of right now, we have 10 reviews on Apple Podcasts. Huge round of applause to the people who wrote those. Thank you so much. But I know that more than 10 people are listening to this show regularly. And if you're one of those people who has not written a review yet, I would be so grateful if you did. Thank you. With this episode, I feel the need to pull back the curtain and talk a little bit about how the sausage was made for this show. As most of you know, I'm a one-man band. Researching, recording, editing, everything. And this story was incredibly difficult to put together. First off, there is no written biography about Melvin Van Peebles. I had to piece this narrative together from interviews, both recorded and written, old newspaper articles, old magazine articles, and honestly, a lot of the commonly repeated information is wrong. Now, there is a documentary called How to Eat Your Watermelon in White Company and Enjoy It by Joe Angio, which was extremely helpful. But when it came to the finer points, particularly of Van Peebles' childhood, I had to rely on his own oral history. In doing so, I endeavored to cross-check every fact he gave, and while there were certain details I could never prove, I would like to add that his recall of dates and times and world events as they related to his childhood had a shocking degree of accuracy. So I feel pretty confident that he meant what he said. Now, there's a reason why this biographical information was so difficult to track down. Van Peebles wanted it that way. As a 1968 article from Ebony Magazine writes, quote, His hermetic ways are so complete that when not working, he seems to vanish into the texture of Paris. Few people know his address or telephone number. He does not fancy nightlife and owns neither a television nor a radio set. If Van Peebles had anything to do with it, his personal history would remain completely unknown. Obviously, I did not read this before, picking him as a subject. What I'm trying to say is that this was a huge challenge to piece together. And it may sound arrogant, but I think that what you're about to hear is the most complete record of the life of Melvin Van Peebles available. If there's something else out there, I haven't found it. I did not do this for money because I'm not making money on this podcast at the present moment. I did this out of love for a man whose legacy I find incredibly inspiring. There are more sources than I can say concisely here. I'm just going to put all those down in the show notes, but I've gone on too long now. Let's get into the story. Oh, 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 oh,
Melvin Van Peebles was born on August 21st, 1932 on the south side of Chicago to Marion and Edwin Peebles. Now right off the bat, things are not what they seem. Marion was his father's name. Edwin was his mother. She was the youngest of six, all girls, and her father, hoping to finally have a boy, thought that giving the unborn baby a boy's name would help his chances. It didn't, but the name Edwin just happened to stick. Both his parents were born in 1902, Edwin somewhere near the Louisiana-Texas border and Marion somewhere in Mississippi. At the turn of the century, over 90% of the 8.8 million African Americans lived in the South. But within a few short decades, millions would have moved northward in what would come to be called the First Great Migration. This was in large part to escape the horrors of Jim Crow, the American apartheid, where a black person was lynched, beaten, or burned alive every week between 1900 and 1945. It was also in large part due to the hope of getting manufacturing jobs in northern cities, particularly during the First World War when the predominantly white male working class was overseas. Now, as far as I can tell, Marion and Edwin moved to Chicago together in their late 20s along with Edwin's entire extended family. I can't find any record of either of them in the 1930 census. However, I can find entries for the whole family, including Edwin's father, mother, sisters, and brothers-in-law in the 1940 census. And with Melvin being born in Chicago in 1932, that leads me to believe that the whole family moved sometime in 1931 and that Edwin and Marion were already married. The entire family took up residence in a building on 58th Street between Calumet and Prairie, close to the southwest corner of Washington Park. In the basement, Father Marion Peebles opened the Hollywood Cleaners and Tailors. In the floors above lived Melvin's grandparents, aunts, and uncles. Edwin and Marion lived on the third floor apartment. Outside the window was an above ground train that came so close to the building you could reach out and touch it as it passed. Now there's always been some intrigue and confusion about the origin of the name Van Peebles. Van is traditionally a nobiliary particle added to the last names of Dutch nobility, like for example the painter Jan van Eyck. And most articles write that Melvin made up the name while living in the Netherlands, possibly to dissociate himself from his American heritage. But according to a 2006 interview with the History Makers, Van Peebles insisted that his mother wrote his name on his birth certificate as Melvin Van Peebles. He doesn't know why she did that. Everyone else in the family was just named Peebles. I looked for this document online, but I couldn't find it. But the circumstantial evidence is pretty clear that the van was there long before he moved to Amsterdam. And being christened with this unique name at birth seems fitting for young Melvin. No matter where he went, he always seemed to stand out. His loving parents dressed him in homemade clothes, lemon yellow and lime green satin shorts with a matching shirt and beanie. As his daughter, Megan, says in the documentary How to Eat Your Watermelon in White Company and Enjoy It, quote, On the south side of Chicago, you put that outfit on a not very attractive, knobby-kneed little black boy, they stick out. No wonder he spent his time in the library. A scrawny mama's boy Melvin attended a large AME church. As he explains later, quote, 
this reverend would preach and he'd explain to you that if you weren't born again, you were going to burn and blah, blah, blah. And this goes on for Sundays. And by the time I'm six or seven or eight, I decided I wanted to join the church. Terrified by the prospect of going to hell, he joined the line of young children who were invited to the preacher's pulpit to be saved. Quote, After the service, all my aunts would grab me and hug me. Now there was all these 40D cups, and they didn't give you time for a breath. I mean, they buried you right there. So I had all these aunts one after another, and I would hyperventilate, except I had one aunt, Aunt Bert, who was flat-chested. And so I would always arrange to get Aunt Bert in the middle. So by the time three of my aunts had gotten me, and I'd gotten to Aunt Bert, I could catch my breath, and then I could get to the other two. Well, one day, Aunt Bert was sick, and I had five 40D cups in a row, and I fainted. And people said, oh, that's a sign from God. I'm laying there on the floor panting for breath. And they're saying, see, the Lord made it. Amen. It was decided that my life's work, because they'd seen it from God, I was going to be a minister. However, when Melvin returned home, he realized he didn't feel any more saved than he had done the previous day. Figuring he'd done something wrong, he goes back to church the following Sunday and once again joins the line to be saved, eliciting light laughter from the crowd. The result was the same. He still didn't feel like he was walking with the angels. So the third Sunday in a row, he charges to the head of the line, desperate to be saved, causing the church to break out in hysterical laughter. The preacher makes a good show, saying, isn't this wonderful? Then grabs Melvin by the cheek and whispers, I don't want to see your ass up here again. You're making me a laughing stock. Melvin reflected, quote, at that juncture, me and religion sort of parted ways. During his early childhood, Melvin spent far more time with adults than kids his own age. He did odd jobs at his father's tailor shop and shined shoes at his grandfather's barber shop around the corner. The all-black neighborhood he grew up in left a unique and powerful imprint on his mind. He recalls sitting around the barber shop, listening to his elders. He would later imagine the verbose conversations, much like Greek philosophers debating in the Agora. One of his aunts was a club-footed psychic who conducted seances in her apartment. Across the street was Mr. Blunt's typing service, notable because Mr. Blunt was in Ripley's Believe It or Not for being one of the world's fastest typists, despite not having any hands. There was a neighborhood man named Speedy Barnes, who, having suffered from a gas attack in the First World War, was, as Melvin puts it, quote, a little nuts. I once saw him stick a firecracker in a milk horse's behind and light it, and the horse went apeshit, and he almost died from laughter. From an early age, Melvin was exposed to a wide variety of music. His father would mend the clothes of gospel guitarist Sister Rosetta Tharp. At night, the alleyway beneath his window would echo with music from Gold's Lounge, and by day, he might hear the striking voice of Billy Eckstein or Dinah Washington singing outside of the record store across the street, hawking their wares. I'm an evil gal, don't you bother with me. Yes, I'm an evil gal, don't you bother with me. Empty your pockets and fill you with me. After saving up a little money, young Melvin bought a record and played it on his parents' record player. Quote, I loved the drumming on the record, and there was no name for the music, at least that I knew about. But the record was, I want a big leg mama. Yeah, yeah, I want a big leg mama to tell my troubles too. 
I didn't know the sexual implications. My mom was so angry. She was a really nice mom, but she tore it up. His mother was a full-time housewife, both loving and protective, with good reason. There was constant danger lurking behind the memorable characters of 58th Street. Melvin would later say, quote, This was the toughest street in America at the time. By the time I was 10, I'd seen nine people killed right there in the street. The neighborhood was run by a cop called Two-Gun Pete, and he'd shoot you if you blinked. Smaller than all the other kids in the neighborhood, Melvin was frequently the target of bullying and violence, and had to learn a mixture of fighting back and talking fast to avoid being hurt. Melvin found solace and safety in learning. He excelled in school, and at the age of nine, while on a field trip to the Art Institute of Chicago, a tour guide recognized the talent and natural eye of little Melvin. After speaking with his school and his parents, they offered Melvin a scholarship to a summer painting program at the Institute. By the age of 10, he had completed his grade school education, the equivalent of elementary and middle school. Now, it's pure speculation on my part, but I kind of think that it was at his mother's behest that shortly after finishing grade school, Melvin and his parents moved 14 miles south to the tiny suburb of Phoenix, Illinois. Bordered by the much larger towns of Harvey to the west and Dalton to the north, Phoenix was a sleepy neighborhood of about 3,500 people on the southern edge of the greater Chicago area. And while this suburb would eventually become predominantly African-American in the early 70s, in 1942, Marion, Edwin, and Melvin were one of the first black families to move to the area. Edwin feared that Melvin was too young to start attending the local, predominantly white high school. So instead, every day for two years, Melvin would drive with his father all the way back to 58th Street to work full-time at the tailor shop. These years would prove to be an incredibly formative experience for the young Van Peebles. Again, he's 10 years old and small for his age. His father had to turn over an old Coca-Cola crate for Melvin to stand on so he could see over the cash register. Making only 50 cents a day, Melvin was eager to find more ways to make money. Sometimes, instead of paying his son, Marion would give Melvin a pile of old unclaimed clothes, which Melvin would, in turn, load onto a wagon and sell on the street. His customers were, as he says, quote, winos and whiskey heads. And it was here that he quickly learned the art of deal-making. If he charged too much, the winos would beat him up and steal the clothes anyway. But if he charged too little, he would make even less money than he did at his father's shop. While his father was out making deliveries, he would leave Melvin in charge of the other employees. Referred to as Pee-wee by the other workers, Melvin was embraced as one of their own. Quote, My peer group was a bunch of roughnecks, ex-cons, and good guys, who were all at least 20 to 30 years older than I was. I was one of the workers. That's who I knew. That's the world I knew. As long as they got their work done on time, Melvin wouldn't tell his dad about the many women his employees would invite over to the Hollywood tailor and cleaners. Melvin watched and learned as his much older co-workers flirted and eventually took the girls to the back room to have sex. As Melvin would later hint, by the age of 11 or 12, he was being invited to participate. On the weekends, Melvin would go by himself to the local cinema and watch double and triple features on Saturdays. 
As he says in the 1998 documentary Classified X, the movies were a place to learn how to ride a horse, climb a palm tree, or ski. You could learn how to court a girl and even kiss. But most importantly, the movies offered a peephole into the world outside of my ghetto. The only problem was I couldn't project the me. By me, I mean myself and the, the colored folks in the neighborhood who comprised my entire universe with what the movies were showing. The colored folks in the movies were always quaking and yassabossing and shuffling, huh? They didn't bear any resemblance to the majestic, hardworking black folks strutting around the south side of Chicago, where I was from. The men were tough and fearless, and the women were regal queens. A zillion miles away from the army of broad beam mammies that the movies portrayed. As we briefly discussed in our previous episode, there was a small but feisty group of black independent filmmakers making and distributing films to segregated theaters across the country. But let's not look to the past with romantic delusions. These films had an incredibly small audience. And despite growing up in an all-black neighborhood in the south side of Chicago, Melvin never saw a black independent film and had never even heard of Oscar Michaud until he was an adult. The so-called golden era of independent black films is a myth conceived to cloud the excruciating position of the African-American in cinema. The real history of independent black cinema has been one of struggle, studded starts, and stunted careers. A courageous file of brothers and sisters who sacrificed to bring a few precious seconds of black humanity to the silver screen. All that wonderful talent. Wasted. He was exposed to the mainstream Hollywood movies being made for the white majority. Blackface minstrelsy was still very present on American movie screens in the early 1930s. But toward the end of the decade, due to protest by civil rights groups and the rise of fascism in Europe giving overt racism a bad name, liberal white audiences began to find these overt displays of white supremacy just a little bit offensive, and traditional blackface began to fade out of style. Instead, Hollywood put the burden of misrepresentation upon black actors, pigeonholing them into caricature types, long established by the legacy of the minstrel show. In 1939, when Melvin was seven, Hattie McDaniel was the first African-American to win an Academy Award for her performance in Gone with the Wind. Not only was the film an unhistorical, romanticized vision of the slaveholding South, but McDaniel literally played a character named Mammy. Oh, now, Miss Scarlett, you come on and be good and eat just little, No! Honey. I'm going to have a good time today and do my eating at the barbecue. If you don't care what folks says about this family, I does. I has told you and told you that she can always tell a lady but the way that she eat in front of folks like a bird. And I ain't aiming for you to go to Mr. John Wilkerson's and eat like a field hand and gobble like a hog. Fiddle-dee-dee. Ashley Wilkes told me he liked to see a girl with a healthy appetite. What gentleman says and what they thinks is two different things. And I ain't noticed Mr. Ashley asking for to marry you. At this same time, Lincoln Perry became the first black actor to become a millionaire, though he was mostly known under his performer name, Steppin' Fetchit, the laziest man in the world. Perry has one of the most complicated legacies of any black performer. A gifted comedian and vaudevillian, Perry found success in Hollywood playing characters that were blatantly lazy and stupid. 
Here's a snippet from the 1934 Will Rogers film Judge Priest, directed by John Ford, in which Will Rogers gives his manservant, Stepan Fetchit, a letter to deliver. Jim! Come on, come on, hurry up here. Come on here when I haul at you. Where you been? Well, I was... Uh, hey, listen, you want, you want to earn that old coonskin coat of mine? I can have that coon coat, Judge. Thank you, Yeah, hey, hey, wait a minute. Come back here. You can if you do everything I tell you to. Uh, do you know a gentleman by the name of Mr. Hart may do? Yeah, that mean man, that coat hug. Huh? Yeah, well, now you see that he gets that, but don't you let him know how he got that. That's see? all I got to teach you. Yeah. Don't say, wait a minute, can, can, can you play Dixie on that thing there? Well, that couldn't go. Yes, I played Dixie with marching through Georgia. Oh, and Mar- marching through Georgia. Yeah, I got you out of one lynching. Yes, but for that couldn't go, I know that I was going to get you playing that marching through Georgia, I'll join the lynchers. Yes, that's comedian Will Rogers making a joke about joining a lynch mob. After years of not receiving equal pay to his white co-stars, Perry quit acting in 1940. But by 1945, he was running out of money and attempted a comeback, but struggled to recapture his earlier success and declared bankruptcy in 1947. He returned to vaudeville until the 1960s when he became a close friend and advisor to the boxer Muhammad Ali. In the 1970s, he had a brief coda to his career, appearing in the film Amazing Grace, in which he plays a wise character who at one point steps on a poster advertising a film of Step and Fetch It. Perry's career has divided critics and scholars. Some, like Andy Rooney's 1968 documentary, Black History, Lost, Stolen, or Strayed, singled out Perry as the epitome of a black artist capitalizing on negative stereotypes. Others, such as Mel Watkins, author of Step and Fetch It, The Life and Times of Lincoln Perry, tells a different story, claiming Perry was using a veiled language, tricking whites into believing that he was stupid in order to get what he wanted. Watkins argues that this would have been implicitly understood by black audiences. Watkins continues that Perry used this tactic both on and off screen, avoiding his more offensive dialogue by turning it into a meaningless mumble. And in the end, Perry opened doors for future African-American performers. In 1976, the Hollywood chapter of the NAACP awarded Perry a special NAACP Image Award, and he was inducted into the Black Filmmakers Hall of Fame. Perry's character was imitated in the early 40s by actors such as Willie Best, a.k.a. Sleep and Eat, and Manton Moreland, who was the fearful, wide-eyed manservant Birmingham Brown in the popular Charlie Chan films. The other stock character was, of course, inherited from the long theatrical history of the Tom shows. Even as late as 1946, Walt Disney's The Song of the South was using this image to sell lost cause romanticism to children with its Uncle Remus character, who in the original version of the film said, quote, A long time ago, when every day was mighty satisfactual, if you'll excuse me for saying so, t'was better all around. He says this before launching into zippity doo Young Melvin would have seen them all, and eventually realized that he left the theater feeling different than he had walked in. Quote, Later I learned what that emotion was. It was called shame. At the age of 12, Melvin enrolled in Thornton Township High School. With a student body of about 3,000, only 50 were non-white. 
Often, Melvin was the only black person in his class. Small, young, quiet, and strangely dressed, Melvin obviously stood out. Classmates recalled his large, horn-rimmed glasses and his orange shoes that squeaked when he walked. After school, he would take the train into the city and continue working at his dad's shop. Quote, I was never involved with this club or that club because I had these other things I had to do. And besides that, I was having a lot more fun at work with the other guys because they treated me just as if I was one of them than I was with those dumbass kids giggling, you know what I mean? I ended up with this duality, two ways of talking, the white bread or blue collar upward mobility that you could have in the suburbs. And on the other hand, there was hardcore hood. So I was perfectly at ease in the two, and that would be my early upbringing. Melvin's duality happened to coincide with a unique moment in United States racial history. Over the course of the Second World War, the U.S. government had to mobilize the entire country toward the war effort. American propagandists worked hard to recast the country in opposition to the Nazis as an egalitarian melting pot working together to end racist regimes. Never mind the fact that many Nazi legal structures had been modeled on Jim Crow. As Melvin says, quote, America was experiencing a flood of democracy and a wave or two lapped up on the shores of Hollywood, hence the promise of movies depicting Negro characters more honestly, more dignified, i.e. the new Negro. But this change came with a revelation in the mind of young Melvin, quote, if Hollywood invented the new Negro, it was admitting to inventing the old Negro in the first place. With their chest puffed out in liberal pride, Hollywood simply created new black stereotypes. There was 1949's Home of the Brave, in which a white army psychiatrist helps a paralyzed black veteran confront his fear of prejudice. In the climactic scene, the psychiatrist calls the soldier the N-word, making him so angry that he walks again. Upon realizing what has happened, the black soldier falls into the white psychiatrist's arms, crying in gratitude. All right, Peter, all right. Time. We only had more time. That same year came the film Pinky, directed by Elia Kazan. It told the story of a light-skinned colored woman who returns to the South passing as white. The role was played by a very white Gene Crane, saying lines like this. What am I then? You tell me. You're the ones that set the standards, you whites. You're the ones that judge people by the color of their skins. Well, by your own standards, by the only ones that matter to you, I'm as white as you are. That's why you all hate me. What should I do, dye my face? Grovel and shuffle? Say yasm and know him? Marry some man like Jake Waters? Carry a razor in my stocking so I won't upset you? Then there was 1949's Lost Boundaries, supposedly telling the true story of Dr. Robert C. Johnston, who passed for white in New England. Again, a white actor was cast to play the colored doctor in a bizarro form of blackface. Mom, what's wrong with Dad? What have I done? You haven't done anything, Howard. It's not your fault. I should have told you this years ago. I'm part Negro, Howard, so is your mother. What do you mean? That makes you a Negro, too. The Navy doesn't commission Negroes. But I'm white. No. It isn't true. We're all Negroes. 
I don't believe it. I'm sorry, Howard. Howard, we did Leave me alone. That film won Best Screenplay at Cannes and was marketed with a poster that read, quote, For 20 tormenting years, they lived with a strange, dark secret. Again, Van Peebles from Classified X. The sad fact was that the insults had only gone underground and were more insidious and psychologically damaging than ever. The difference of the treatment of the Negro in the old films and the new was like the difference in the supposedly liberal Norse treatment of the Negro and the openly hostile South. Despite being one of the few black students at Thornton Township, Melvin doesn't recall ever having any overt problems with his peers. In fact, his differences allowed him to stand out. Quote, when I'd go across the campus at the high school, they'd say, hey, Melvin, because they all knew me. I thought I was Mr. Personality. But having been surrounded by adults for most of his life, Melvin used his little free time for more adult pursuits. By his mid-teens, he had begun having sexual relationships with several older women. When he was 16, he rebelled against his overprotective mother by engaging in a sexual relationship with one of her 47-year-old friends named Miss Ware. It's a bit of a double standard calling this a sexual relationship and not statutory rape, but I'm trying to go off the way Melvin talks about it. Quote, I just always remember the kindness of that lady and the other ladies that I knew, grown ladies. They were cool. Miss Ware had a Studebaker, and she offered to let me use it, and she offered me one of the rooms in her apartment to bring other ladies. I used the car, but I didn't bring the other young ladies. I try not to push my luck. Melvin graduated high school in 1947 at the age of 15, and was now set to become the first person in his family to pursue a college degree. His mother insisted that he go to a real school, a colored university, what we would now call an HBCU. Melvin enrolled in West Virginia State College on an art scholarship. Unfortunately, after attending one of the best public high schools in the country, he found the college not up to his academic standards. The textbooks were old, and the curriculum often covered topics he had already learned. Furthermore, no longer standing out as one of the few black kids in his class, Melvin struggled to fit in with his classmates. Quote, What happened was, nobody liked me, or I thought nobody liked me. You'd gotten used to being something that you weren't, just because you were playing on the other side of the street and not even aware of it. I thought I was Mr. Personality, now I'm just Mr. Obvious. He tried his best, even attempting to join a fraternity, but left a week later saying, quote, They paddle you, and I was like, Fuck this shit. <laughs> Y'all, Melvin Van Peebles is hilarious. Okay. Um, anyway, after a male teacher made an unwanted sexual pass at him, Melvin dropped out. After returning home, he convinced his mother to let him pick the next school. He received a partial scholarship in art and enrolled in a Methodist college, Ohio Wesleyan University. He didn't act like the few other black classmates in the school, saying, quote, they hadn't been around white people and were scared of this and that. Without a proper black barber in town, the minority students would sometimes hitchhike 20 miles to the nearest barber shop. Melvin recalls, quote, I said, fuck this. I just shaved my head. And they said, well, why did you? I said, well, I couldn't get my hair cut. What do you want? I mean, I did things that they would consider very provocative. Years later, when he met up with a teacher from Ohio Wesleyan, the teacher said to him, quote, 
Melvin, you were the first militant I ever met. But for Melvin, he summed up his mindset in six simple words. Quote, I just do what I do. Whether by calculation or just plain stubbornness, Melvin's behavior continued to rub people the wrong way. Quote, the racial password back then was to not bring attention to yourself, and you might even be considered as one of them, whoever them was. I just never bothered with that, which had its complications to them. But one year, nobody spoke to me for a year at this college. They sent me into the Coventry. People wouldn't speak to me except in class or things like that, you know, when it was necessary. And I felt very bad. Then the interviewer for the History Makers asks, What for? Melvin says, Well, I felt bad for them being denied my company. Melvin was actually kicked out of a creative writing class with the teacher telling him he would never be a good writer. Instead, Melvin doubled down, becoming an English lit double major just to prove that he could. He was told that he could earn more money for school if he signed up for a class and took the SAT. He did, scoring a near-perfect score. What he didn't realize, or claims he didn't realize, was that he had just joined the ROTC, the Reserve Officers Training Corps, which was preparing him for military service post-graduation. Melvin graduated in the spring of 1950 with a degree in literature and at the age of 17. Now, he never really talks about this moment in any interviews, but I did manage to get a copy of his 1968 semi-autobiographical novel, A Bear for the FBI. The book ends with this really touching graduation scene where his hardworking parents, who had sacrificed so much to try to give their son a better life, come to see him graduate. After the ceremony, his dad pulls him aside and says, quote, Son, Mother and me, we are happy and proud of you. You are finishing college, and as time goes on, you will always be working on something bigger and better. Remember, son, life is a struggle. You've got to fight. Things will come your way in time. Just work hard and keep a clear mind. People are more intelligent than they used to be, but you must keep fighting. We must not hate, big guy. We must not hate, but love. I know you think you're a man now, but you don't know anything about life. When I was your age, I had been out in the world a long time. You have no idea, son, no idea what lies ahead, but always plan and look ahead. Myself, I've always been a dreamer. What is a man without his dreams? Map things out, plan. One great writer said he would rather be a king of the forest for a day than to be a lamb for a lifetime. My mother came back, and my dad put his left arm around her, and they stood facing me. We love you, son, mother said. I know you love your dad, but I don't think you love me. Yes, I do, mother, I said. My dad squeezed mom's shoulders, and he began to blink his eyes. He took out his handkerchief and gave it to my mother. You don't understand everything I have said now, son, but it will get clearer and clearer as you go along and begin to see life. Remember what I've tried to tell you, son. Yes, sir, I said. It's such a lovely little scene, and it really paints a picture of the loving, middle-class, hard-working parents he had. And even though his relationship to them is barely mentioned for the rest of his life, you can really feel the strong connection that bound them together. I love this because in the search for authenticity, so often we define our narratives by the hardships and the setbacks, the obstacles one needs to overcome on the path to self-actualization. 
But just as important are the loving relationships that ground us into some sense of a home. And even for Melvin, who will do everything in his power to never live a life like his mom or his dad, it's clear that his father's message stuck with him for the rest of his days. After graduating college, Melvin saved up and bought a boat ticket to go to Europe. But in June, the North Korean army launched an all-out invasion across the 38th parallel, instigating the Korean War. And a mere 13 days after graduating from college, Melvin was called up from the reserves to join the Air Force as a commissioned officer. He wasn't even old enough to vote. He was to be stationed at Goodfellow Air Force Base in San Angelo, Texas, which is about as smack dab in the middle of nowhere Texas as you can get. In a telling moment of what her experience must have been like growing up in the South, his mother insisted on driving him all the way to the base. When she dropped him off, she told him, quote, Promise me one thing, son. You won't go off this base. You won't live. You'll be dead. However, the racism Melvin was met with wasn't limited to the areas outside of Goodfellow Air Force Base. Only two years earlier, in 1948, President Harry Truman called on Congress to pass civil rights legislation that included anti-lynching and anti-poll tax laws, a right to fair employment practices, and desegregation of the military. When Southern senators threatened to filibuster, Truman issued Executive Order 9981, abolishing segregation in the armed forces. An advisory committee spent two years determining how the practices and procedures of this could be accomplished and were met with considerable pushback. Progress was slow, and integration of the armed forces wouldn't become a reality until the end of the Korean War in 1953. But this is 1950. And Melvin Van Peebles is one of the first African-American officers to be integrated into the Air Force. I think it's worth mentioning Melvin's appearance at this stage. He's about average height, but very thin, so much so that while in college, he was still able to get a 12 and under ticket at the movie theater. He's handsome with a strong chin and defined underbite that adds an aura of dignified seriousness as if he's always gritting his teeth over his next big idea. And then there's his eyes. They're simultaneously soft yet piercing, as if he just watched you steal something from the grocery store and is silently waiting for you to put it back. At this stage of his life, he seldom smiled and instead kept this mysterious visage of austerity that I can't help but compare to the great stone face himself, Buster Keaton. He starts off in pilot school, but is soon flunked out, later learning that almost all black applicants were intentionally failed out of the program. He becomes a navigator, hoping to work on a plane that was, quote, carrying nurses back and forth. Instead, he was assigned to Strategic Air Command's top-secret new plane, the B-47 Stratajet, the nation's first jet-powered bomber. Instead of the cute nurses he hoped for, these planes carried just three men— and one atomic bomb. He becomes a bombardier and develops a love for astronomy after learning to navigate the secretive jet by looking at the stars. During training, Melvin experienced many of the dangers and insults of segregation. Quote, If I ever went into a bar or a restaurant or anywhere else, I'd sit down for about 10 minutes and here come the MPs. Somebody had put a call in. There's someone in here impersonating an officer. 
the MP would come, and then of course I'd say, who are you talking to? Stand to attention when you're talking to me. I'd pull out my stuff, and they'd say, sorry, sir, no problem, and I'd go back to eating. At a base in Houston, non-commissioned officers had racially segregated clubs, but commissioned officers had only one facility, with one locker room and one swimming pool. Upon Melvin's arrival, the commander had the swimming pool filled with concrete and turned it into a parking lot, leaving the entire officer's corps to sit around in the Texas heat without any relief. Once, while on a training mission near the border, Melvin's class of 17 officers was forced to land due to bad weather, but when he discovered the local hotel was whites only, Melvin was forced to walk into Mexico just to find a place to sleep. One night, in San Angelo, Melvin was chased by a group of townspeople, either, he tells two different versions of this story in two different interviews, because he refused to sit in the back of a city bus, or because the townspeople saw white soldiers saluting a black officer. Melvin had to run through the Texas scrub, following the lights of the base landing strip in order to escape. Despite all these hardships, Melvin became one of the few skilled jet navigators and accepted two extensions of duty. He bought a small house in the middle of the desert where he continued to work on his painting and entertained various local women, both white and black. And let me just say, this will be a reality for the rest of Melvin's life. There's no other way to put it. Dude has a lot of sex. There's no future accusations or scandal that I'm setting up here, so don't have that in the back of your mind. It's just a part of his personality, a part of his life. There is, of course, a political dimension that we'll discuss later, but I mention it now because he does. All the time. In every interview. Basically, from this point on in the story, you can just assume that there are a lot of women coming in and out of Melvin's life because, well, he's coming in and out of them. As he puts it, quote, I'm an equal opportunity cad. At this point, the early 50s, Hollywood was facing an existential crisis. In 1948, the Supreme Court ruled that the studio system's anti-competitive practices were hurting American consumers and forced all major U.S. studios to divest from their theater chains, opening the door ever so slightly for independent films to find their way to the screen. At the same time, a new invention was convincing entertainment seekers to spend their time at home rather than go to the big screen. Television was sweeping the nation. In 1946, approximately 8,000 households had TVs. Within 15 years, that number had increased to almost 46 million. With reduced profits and a production slate that was a fraction of what it once was, Hollywood studios became increasingly risk-averse throughout the 1950s, depending on star power, musicals, and gimmicks like widescreen cinerama to get people to the theaters. Hollywood execs were confused that the quote-unquote new Negro characters that had filled cinemas in 1948 and 1949 were not motivating black audiences to spend money in the way that they had hoped. In the new cinema landscape of decreased production and dwindling audiences, black representation reverted back to the old song-and-dance caricatures, service workers and waiters, and willing sacrifices whose deaths served to advance the white hero's story. Perhaps this last example played into Melvin's mind, as danger and death seemed to be getting closer and closer. One day, a captain who outranked him took his place on the day's flight, 
With the afternoon off, Melvin invited a woman over to his house, and as he puts it, quote, pretty soon, bong bong bang bang, we're doing the funky monkey. This was before the sexual revolution, because afterwards the girl would say, where am I? I'm not this type of girl. And I'd say, of course not. And me, I'm not this type of guy either. Suddenly, they were interrupted by a huge explosion. Melvin runs outside and sees a plume of black smoke in the distance. He jumps in his car and drives to what turns out to be the wreckage of a plane. He gets out of his car and runs to the charred remains of the cockpit. Still strapped to his seat was the pilot, only he didn't have a head. Looking down at the body's jumpsuit, Melvin saw the name of the captain who had replaced him. Shortly after this incident, Melvin began living with a woman whom he had known through mutual friends back at Wesleyan University. She was a beautiful German-born artist named Maria Marx. Melvin describes her as, quote, a nice lady, so white she looked like she glowed in the dark. At this point, 1952, his base had grown to tolerate black officers, but living with a white woman, that was unheard of. When his commanding officer, Major Cotton, asked him about his new girlfriend, Melvin interrupted him. Whoa, 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 that's not my girlfriend. That's just my cousin. You know how it is, things in the South. That's my cousin. Just don't say anything. Mind blown, Major Cotton nodded and never brought it up again. Recalling the incident later, Melvin said, quote, Every now and then you'd have trouble with somebody. You just break their head and keep on going. This would become classic Van Peebles' behavior, using his keen eye and trickster wit to avoid anyone that stood in the way of him doing what he wanted to do. For her part, Maria reveled in the deception. When the guards would check her ID on the base and ask about her last name, she would say, oh yeah, Marx, that's my slave name. Not wanting to waste the potential benefits one might receive in the event of a service member's death, he and Maria decided to get secretly married. And after three and a half years of service, he was moved to Riverside, California. As Melvin's son Mario says in a 2021 interview, quote, He'd broken the cardinal rule, which was don't get too good at a job you don't want to have. The Air Force wanted to keep him around as their black guy, who, you know, represented the new Air Force. But now, once again, he was up for a promotion that would lock him in for at least another year of service. And that's when Maria found out she was pregnant. Suddenly, the whole she's my cousin act was about to get real weird. One day, he claims to have heard a voice in his head. It was his peg-legged spiritualist aunt saying, quote, get your black ass out of there, don't re-up. He and Maria abandoned most of their belongings and ran away to Mexico. They moved to Mexico City, where Melvin tried to make it as a portrait artist. Mostly, they were hungry. When it came time to give birth, they couldn't get a doctor. So instead, with the help of a Spanish-speaking midwife, Maria gave birth at home, and Melvin delivered his first son, Mario. His Spanish gradually improved, and the young family moved throughout Mexico for the rest of 1955. But when the time came that they would have to apply for visas in order to stay in the country, Melvin, now a 24-year-old college graduate, Air Force veteran, and father, decided to move his young family to, quote, the best city in the United States, San Francisco. With his years of experience navigating some of the most sophisticated aircraft ever built, 
Melvin figured he would try to become a commercial pilot, but was denied a job based on the color of his skin. It would require a 1963 Supreme Court decision to desegregate the American passenger airline industry. Instead, Melvin decided to get the most San Francisco job he could possibly find, and thus he became a grip man on a cable car. The cable cars are intertwined with the soul of San Francisco, literally. And this totally blew my mind to learn. Unlike the streetcars of, say, New Orleans, which are powered by electric motors, cable cars are operated by grabbing hold of a giant metal cable that is constantly moving underneath the ground. The grip man controls the car by operating a huge lever, which works like a 300-pound pair of pliers. When he pulls the lever back, the pliers below the train grab hold of the moving cable and whoosh, pull the car along the road. The cars themselves are feats of artistry and engineering. To this day, when a cable car needs to be replaced, it can take up to two years for a team of skilled craftsmen to complete the task. Melvin worked as the grip man on the Powell Mason Street line between Market Street and Fisherman's Wharf. Maria soon was pregnant with a second child, Megan. But as I alluded to earlier, their marriage was not a faithful one. In a 2015 interview with YouTube channel Real Black One, Melvin was asked what his fondest memories were of his days working on the cable car. He responds, quote, I got laid a lot. But these physical perks were offset by the job's physical demands. Constantly squeezing and pulling the giant levers of the grip made his hands ache. And piloting this multi-ton machine on the hills and curves of San Francisco was a nerve-wracking proposition. Trying to think of something else just to avoid the pain, he began daydreaming of writing and eventually set pen to paper. Now, according to a 2015 interview, one day while Melvin was talking about his little writing project with regular customers, he was overheard by an unassuming 51-year-old woman who said with a German accent that she was a photographer and could help turn his little project into a photo essay. Little did he know that this was renowned photographer Ruth Bernhard, who had already enjoyed a 30-year career during which she had worked at MoMA and with members of the F-64 group, Ansel Adams called her, quote, the greatest photographer of the nude. However, in her autobiography, titled Ruth Bernhard Between Life and Art, she tells a slightly different story. According to her, Melvin had met a female painter in a park and asked if she knew a photographer. She happened to be married to a photographer named Phil Palmer, who then gave him Ruth's number. Quote, he called me and said, I'm making southern fried chicken tonight. Would you come over for dinner? I met his lovely German wife and their adorable child, Mario. He simply asked me to do the book with him. I couldn't say no. I spent a lot of time with Peebles on the cable cars, riding all over the city. He was a very charming and bright fellow. And with that, Melvin's little writing project had grown into a book. After several cold calls, he found a publisher, and his first book, The Big Heart, was released under the name Melvin Van. Within a few weeks, the book was bringing in good sales. Melvin later said, quote, I wasn't surprised. Shit, I knew it was good. Here's an excerpt. A cable car is a big heart with people for blood. The people pump on and off. 
If you think of it like that, it's pretty simple. I like the family feeling you get at night on the cable cars. The car sits on the turntable, and people get on in little groups and sit apart from one another. Then it's time to go, and I yell, here we go, curve, hold on, and everyone laughs and shrieks. Suddenly, right then, zooming around the turn, it's no longer a cable car full of isolated little groups. A feeling of all being together spreads over the car. It is sort of like the feeling you have when you sit around a big turkey dinner with your family. By the time we get near the other end of the line and people start getting off, you feel as if your old high school class was breaking up and everybody yells goodbye to one another and everything. Powell Street is very steep, and without fail, someone going for their first ride will ask me, are the brakes good? Or, how long has it been since there was a runaway cable car? I get a confused look on my face and I say real apologetically, I'm sorry, I don't know, this is my first day. Then everybody screams. I pull back on the grip and the cable car dips forward and we start down. The big heart embodies a working class grace and power with flourishes of literary metaphor. It is similar to, but not considered the work of beat poets. It came out after 1956 Howl and 1957's On the Road and just before 1959's Naked Lunch. This position of running parallel to more established genres and movements is one that Melvin will embody for the rest of his career. It's also worth noting that this book came out 11 years before Maya Angelou famously wrote about her time as a cable car conductor, collecting fares and dealing with passengers in her autobiographical book of poetry, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings. In the wake of his literary success, Melvin wrote the autobiographical novel I quoted from earlier and sends it out to publishers. While waiting for a response, Melvin continues to work on the cable car until one day, quote, a guy got on the cable car and he said he wanted to get a signature from the guy who wrote the book. They said, pointing at Melvin, oh, that's him. He said, no, 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 no. I mean the guy who wrote it. They said, that's him. That's him? He came over to me and said, this is your book? You know, the layout's very good. I said, what's a layout? He said, the layout is the pictures on the page. I said, oh, I did that. He said, and the captions, who wrote the captions? I said, what's that? He said, you know the story underneath. I said, oh, I did that. I didn't know the technical terms for any of this shit. And we went on and he said, you know, this book could be a movie. I said, shit, I'll go into movies. And that's how I went into movies. Displaying a keen knack for finding talented collaborators, Van Peebles got in contact with future Bay Area legend, Alan Willis. Willis was an African-American socialist who had collaborated on the East Coast with Langston Hughes and Raya Dunayevskaya. Like Van Peebles, he had moved to San Francisco with his wife in the early 50s and had since bought a 16mm film camera, which he used to produce, direct, film, and edit the short Have You Sold Your Dozen Roses with legendary beat poet Lawrence Ferlinghetti. Ferlinghetti also founded City Lights Bookstore, named after the Chaplin film. Alan Willis would go on to become the first African-American to work in California broadcast journalism, creating award-winning documentaries such as 1970's Stagger Lee about Black Panther Bobby Seale and The Other America about Martin Luther King Jr.'s white backlash speech at Stanford University. But back in 1957, Alan was just starting out. He just knew enough to show Melvin the ropes. Melvin would later say, quote, Alan taught me everything and he meant everything. The process went something like this. Melvin goes to Alan and says, I wanna make movies. Alan asks, fiction or nonfiction? 
Fiction, Melvin says. I want to tell stories. Alan asks, okay, how long? I don't know, Melvin says. How long are movies anyway? I never paid attention. About 90 minutes or longer. Well, how much is the film? Are you going to shoot in 16 or 35? Well, what's that? Alan explains, 16 millimeter or 35 millimeter. It's it's the size of the film. You know what? I'm going to make this decision for you. I've got a 16 millimeter camera, and if you want to do it, I'll do it with you. I won't charge you for the camera. So Melvin calculates that it would cost him $557 for 90 minutes of 16 millimeter film. They go out to shoot, and Alan says, okay, we'll use this roll for the single scene. And Melvin responds, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Don't use all the film. He didn't realize that he would have to edit the movie. So suddenly, his $557 investment is growing. But okay, at least we got these shots. It'll just be a little shorter than I thought. After the shooting is done, Melvin pays the last of his money to get the print. He runs home to his single-room apartment that didn't even have curtains and sticks Alan's portable film projector underneath Mario's crib, the darkest place in the room. He lays on the floor and stares into the shadows, expecting to see some terrible sequence of amateur filmmaking. Instead, quote, it looked like a regular film. And I said, oh, God damn, I got you now. Your ass is grass. That's what I said to the world. Despite his joy, he's still not completely happy with the story. So he, he gets together with Alan to talk through the problem. He says, the story's in there, but it's all confused. Alan says, well, you got to edit it. Melvin says, what's that? Alan gives him a copy of Sergei Eisenstein's book, Film Form, and explains to him how you glue film strips together. Melvin says, okay, let's start. Alan says, hold on, hold on. That's the master negative. We need to go pay for another editing print. What? Melvin yells. He doesn't have the money to pay for this. And by this point, Maria is not happy. Quote, my wife is getting rocks in her jaws the size of Mount Rushmore. In reflecting on this moment in a 2009 interview with The Visionary Project, Melvin says, quote, he may not come when you call, but he's always right on time. Melvin had owned a red Studebaker since his days in the Air Force, but the car was no longer running and had been sitting out on his block for months. One day, he hears a tremendous crash outside. He runs out and sees that a driver had lost control and sideswiped the red Studebaker. Quickly assessing the situation, Melvin puts on an act. Oh my god, my car, look what you've done to my car! The other driver says, whoa, 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 it's not that bad. And Melvin says, are you kidding me? He gets in, he turns on the key, the Studebaker doesn't start, of course. Oh my god, what do I do now? He tricks the other driver into paying for the repairs to his Studebaker, which he then turns around and sells for the money to pay for the second print of his film. Now he edits it based on what he's learned from Sergei Eisenstein's book. He comes back to Alan beaming with pride. Alan says, well, that's great, but aren't you going to put some sound on it? Oh, shit, Melvin says. He didn't even realize that. And that's how he gets into music. Quote, I couldn't afford any musicians. I mean, musicians who were dependable, at least. Everybody else, oh, yeah, brother, I'll be there. Oh, man, you know, but I got high last night and my old lady, blah, blah, blah. So I got disgusted. And that's when I numbered the keys on the piano and started picking out melodies. Finally, after months of work, he was finished. Quote, So my first feature film that I shot turned out to be 11 minutes long. The film was titled Three Pickup Men for Herrick. It was about a group of men gathering in a dusty abandoned lot in the hopes of being selected for a job as a day laborer. 
Almost immediately, Van Peebles and Willis are back out shooting. This time, it's a film called Sunlight, a short fable about a man who resorts to robbery in order to marry the woman he loves. But after he's caught and sent to prison for decades, he returns to attend her wedding to another man. Melvin acts, produces, and directs both films. And like his book, The Big Heart, he is credited under the name Melvin Van. The films are rough early examples of his formal vision. They are subjective stories about African-American characters with shots and themes that will be repeated in his later works. Now, I've read that he shoots a third short titled A King, but I can find neither a copy of it or a record of what happened to it. So if anyone knows, please email me, behindtheslatepod at gmail.com. Now, as he's making these films, Maria gives birth to their second child. And if that wasn't enough pressure, he gets fired from the cable car. Quote, The guy who runs the cable car, personally, he didn't think Negroes should read, let alone write. I said, what are you firing me for? He said, your profile fits the profile of someone who's going to have a big accident. They fired my ass. He suspects it had something to do with the success of his book. But he still got his films, and hoping to make the leap to becoming a full-time filmmaker, Melvin Van Peebles goes to L.A. with his shorts in hand. He hits the pavement, calling on agents and producers, showing his films to anyone who would watch them, and he is offered a job as an elevator attendant. And then told by another agent, quote, If you can tap dance, I might find you some work. He returns home and follows up with the publishers who had received his novel. They say, it's very good, but it's not black enough. Melvin says, what do you mean? They say, well, we don't feel your anguish being black. Can you make some changes, possibly with a reference to lynching? He refuses and instead takes a job at the post office just to feed his family. In a 1964 interview for French television, Melvin says, quote, one thing that's usually expected of a black man in America, you can yell, you can scream against the American system, but one thing the white man wants is to show you're in pain. Show them that the system has made you suffer. Melvin doesn't go into detail about this moment in any record I can find. He doesn't really write about it, and with the benefit of hindsight, he just laughs this off as a minor setback on the way to a major comeback. But I think it's pretty clear that this hurt and for all the racism and discrimination and otherness that he had been aware of his entire life, nothing stuck with him more than these doors being shut in his face. Of course, in his later years, Melvin would say it all with a smile, quote, So I say, okay, well, I have to go to my second love. In October 1957, the Soviet Union launches Sputnik 1, the first artificial satellite launched into orbit, sending the United States into a panic that they are falling behind in the space race. Melvin recalls, quote, So I felt that the future, one of the secure business futures, was going to be in the calculation of trajectories, and the best place for celestial mechanics at that time was Holland. Putting his unique last name to use, he applies and gets accepted to a PhD program in astronomy at the University of Amsterdam, most likely because the acceptance board assumed he was the descendant of a prominent Dutch family. One of the requirements of pursuing higher education in a foreign country through the GI Bill was that you had to be reasonably fluent in the language. Melvin tells the University of Amsterdam that he's going to arrive early to, quote, brush up on his Dutch, implying he was somewhat fluent. He had never spoken a word of Dutch in his life. 
So in 1959, Melvin, Maria, and their two kids pack up and travel from San Francisco to New York, where they have a few days layover before traveling to Amsterdam. Still toting his cans of film, Melvin has one last Hail Mary before committing himself to a life of looking at stars and never trying to be one. He tracks down one of the most influential underground tastemakers in cinema history, Amos Vogel. Vogel was originally born in Austria, but at the age of 17, fled with his parents to escape the Nazis. In 1939, he came to my hometown, Athens, Georgia, to get a degree in animal husbandry. But after recognizing that the racism of Jim Crow was just as bad as the anti-Semitism of the Nazis, he dropped out and instead enrolled at the New School in New York. As we mentioned earlier, Hollywood in the late 40s and early 50s was in an existential crisis that led to a decade of decreased production and increasingly censored and risk-averse filmmaking. But underneath the surface, a community of experimental filmmakers and experimental film lovers was growing, epitomized by the coolest film club in America, New York City's Cinema 16, founded by husband and wife duo Amos and Marcia Vogel. During its 16-year run from 1947 to 1963, Cinema 16 boasted 7,000 members and debuted the work of countless filmmakers who would come to shape the future of movies, including Roman Polanski, John Cassavetes, Nagisa Oshima, and Jonas Mikas. Vogel would eventually end Cinema 16 in 1963 when he and Richard Round co-founded the New York Film Festival. In 1959, Cinema 16 was well-established as the place to distribute underground, avant-garde, and interesting new art. Not that Melvin cared. To him, this was just a last-ditch effort with some, quote, little art house distributor. Impressed by the young filmmaker, Vogel acquired Melvin's shorts to distribute on the 16mm educational film circuit. Somewhat disappointed, Melvin and his family got on a boat and went to Amsterdam and began brushing up his Dutch to become an astronomer. Now, this is a time period in Melvin's life that's pretty unclear. Little anecdotes from Mario Van Peebles, coupled with an article in the September 1968 issue of Ebony Magazine, give sparse details. But from what I can gather, after about a year of studying, Melvin becomes fluent enough in Dutch, and clearly still bitten by the entertainment bug, he auditions for the Dutch National Theatre and gets cast in a touring production of Irish writer Brendan Behan's play, The Hostage. However, years of obsessive workaholism, the absence from his family, the constant financial insecurity, and of course, the regular infidelity, all took a toll on his marriage. And at some point in 1960, I think, Maria has had enough. She takes the two kids, Mario and Megan, and returns to California, leaving Melvin in Amsterdam alone. Unbeknownst to him at this time, Amos Vogel adds the short film Three Pickup Men for Herrick as the pre-show short for a screening of Edward O. Bland's controversial documentary, The Cry of Jazz. Now, this screening was organized by Jonas Mikas and was supposed to be followed by a roundtable discussion between Bland, novelist Mark Kennedy, jazz critic Marshall Stearns, activist and journalist Nat Hintoff, and author Ralph Ellison, who was filling in for James Baldwin, who had to cancel last minute. Ellison hated 
the cry of jazz. And the talkback devolved into a physical altercation and the police were called. Needless to say, Melvin's subtle amateur film was completely forgotten. However, Vogel was not done. He had been invited to the legendary French theater, the Cinémathèque Française, to present a program of 16mm shorts, and at the last minute, includes Melvin's films. He shows, he shows his selection to Cinémathèque founder and all-around cinephile legend Henri Langlois. Back in the early 30s, he, along with critic and archivist Lada Eisner, had constructed one of the largest film collections in the world. But when the Nazis occupied Paris in 1940, they ordered the collection to be destroyed. Langlois and Eisner risked their lives to smuggle their collection out of France for safekeeping. After the war, the French government provided a screening room and subsidies to the cinephiles, and soon the Cinémathèque Française was the center of French film culture. He was the father of the French New Wave, with directors like François Truffaut, Jean-Luc Godard, Claude Chabrol, Alain René, often packing the front row, earning them the nickname Les Enfants de la Cinémathèque, the Children of the Cinémathèque. When Langlois, along with his wife, Mary Mearson, and co-founder, Lotta Eisner, saw the films of Melvin Van Peebles, they immediately asked Vogel how to get in touch with the unknown filmmaker. Well, at this time, Melvin is struggling. He's alone, trying to keep up with a PhD program while supporting himself as a Dutch actor. And one day, he opens his mailbox and gets a postcard from the Cinémathèque Française. It says... What are you doing in astronomy? You're made for cinema. And with that, they invite him to Paris. He arrives in Paris, gets picked up in a big car, and is driven down to the Cinémathèque for a screening of his shorts. As Melvin says, quote, Everybody oohed and odd. They came downstairs and kissed me on both cheeks, and then they got in their cars and drove away. I was in the middle of the Champs-Élysées. I couldn't speak a word of French. Two wet cheeks, three cans of film, not a penny in my pocket. But I had been given a glimmer of possibility. This is one of those moments that I mentioned at the top of the show, where I want you to ask, what would you do? He's 29 years old. All his life, he was the young wunderkind ahead of his time. Now, he's old, past his prime. This should be the moment when he's making conservative choices and settling into middle age. What does Melvin do? Quote, I decide that I'm going to make it in film or die on the route. Melvin drops out of the PhD program. He's homeless. He's a beggar. He gets coins as a street singer. In a 1968 interview with Luce Sand for the French publication Jeune Cinema, which I tried to find a copy of but could only get a small blurb on the internet, he said, quote, my early days in Paris were very difficult. I sang in the streets, begged, and learned rather colorful French in police stations. In 1960-61, I met someone who allowed me to make a short, Le Saint Saint Belle. This 12-minute short film tells the story of a young boy who sees a 500-franc note at the bottom of a storm grate. He struggles to get a piece of gum, which he sticks to his belt buckle and tries to use to retrieve the note. But when he almost succeeds, he's interrupted by a disheveled man who uses a pen on the end of a folding stick to retrieve the money for himself. 
The boy attacks the man, striking him with his belt buckle. The man retaliates, choking the boy. Fearing the child is dead, the man runs away. But the boy reawakens, only to hear the rush of water coming down the gutter. He frantically tries to stop the deluge, first with a crude dam, then by laying his body across the drain. His efforts are futile, and the 500-franc note washes away. The film is a huge leap forward in style, craft, and tone from his early shorts. Sadly, I can find almost nothing about its production. In that same interview, of which, again, I can only find an excerpt, Van Peebles cryptically states, quote, I wrote the story and music and shot the film, but I ran into problems and ended up in a real mess. But I ran into problems and ended up in a real mess. I stopped going to the cinema for four years. That's how much it hurt to see films that I could perhaps have made just as well or even better. Again, what would you do now? It could be that problems arose from the fact that Melvin did not have a French director's card, the official documentation required to shoot films in France. He later says, quote, I discovered there was a law that said a French writer could have a temporary director's card to bring his own creation to the screen. So, as I was learning French, I always had this in the back of my mind, and I turned myself into a French writer. This is a crazy thing to do. He starts writing and gives himself a crash course in French, as he says, quote, I had to learn it to get along. No righty, no eady. Somehow, and I have no idea how, he lands a job working as an investigative reporter for a French newspaper. One possibility is that he was hired as a possible in to the growing community of black American expatriates living in Paris and growing in popularity. For centuries, the myth of a colorblind France had loomed large within the minds of African Americans. Dancer and actress Josephine Baker immigrated to France at the age of 17 as a way of finding liberation and fame. Writer Richard Wright declared, quote, There is more freedom in one square block of Paris than there is in the entire United States of America. Writers, musicians, painters, hundreds of African Americans moved to Paris in the hope of finding the freedom they could not find in the States. And one such writer was a man named Chester Himes. Himes was born in Missouri. He had led a hard life, including seven years in prison for armed robbery. By the 1940s, he had written two novels about the Great Migration, If He Hollers Let Him Go, and The Lonely Crusade. He used these to get a job in Los Angeles as a screenwriter for Warner Brothers, but upon finding out the color of his skin, Jack Warner had him fired. He later said, quote, up to the age of 31, I had been hurt emotionally, spiritually, and physically as much as 31 years can bear. I had lived in the South. I had fallen down an elevator shaft. I had been kicked out of college. I had served seven and one half years in prison. I had survived the humiliating last five years of depression in Cleveland, and still I was entire, complete, functional. My mind was sharp, my reflexes were good, and I was not bitter." But under the mental corrosion of race prejudice in Los Angeles, I became bitter and saturated with hate. He immigrated to Paris in 1952 and began writing a series of hard-boiled noirs about Harlem detectives Cotton Ed Johnson and Gravedigger Jones. Harlem-born painter Herbert Gentry said of Himes, quote, 
There's something about Chester when he started writing his books about the black thing in the States and all the comical things of black Americans and all like that. It took a certain class, a certain group of French who really thought that was funny, and they started buying his books. Van Peebles interviewed Himes for a story, saying, quote, I was trying to find some deeper meaning into what he was doing. I said, well, sir, why are you doing it like this? He said, really, my contracts are that I do 200 pages, so you write 200 pages. That was it. He sort of had this ambiguity about it, sort of like, sort of like watching your mother-in-law drive over a cliff in your new Cadillac. This ambiguity was possibly something that Himes and Van Peebles shared and brought the two together, but I'd be willing to guess that Himes' aura of secrecy made a big impression on the 30-year-old Melvin, still looking for his path in life. Possibly with the help of his wife, journalist Leslie Packard, Himes got Van Peebles a job at the groundbreaking French satirical magazine Hara Curie. After the Second World War, France struggled to adjust to its new place within the global power system. As cartoonist Jebet says in the documentary How to Eat Your Watermelon in White Company and Enjoy It, quote, In the 60s, France was in a funk. We're bored. We don't talk about sex. We don't talk about politics. We don't talk about anything. We work, and that's it. And in this world of censorship, we were a group of people who wanted to speak up with total freedom. Harakiri's satire was anarchistic. They had no political affiliation other than being against the de Gaulle-Pompidou regimes. They gained attention through their grotesque, exploitative, and sarcastically artistic covers which featured violence, nudity, and absurdist images. Eventually, in 1970, the magazine was banned after mocking the death of French President Charles de Gaulle. It was immediately reincarnated as Charlie Hebdo and is still in print today. Quote, and then one day, in this gang, which was already very tight and working very well, arrived this unusual character, Melvin Van Peebles. Melvin was soon writing a monthly story and editing cartoons within a tight-knit community of some of the best satirical writers and cartoonists in Paris. Cabou, Jebet, Tapor, Walensky. They enjoyed their quirky and mysterious new colleague, Despite his good French, they couldn't help but notice Van Peebles' American drive to succeed, make money, and get power. They joked that in order to reach him, you needed three different phone numbers. One for the woman he lived with on Monday and Tuesday, one for the woman he lived with on Wednesday and Thursday, and one for the woman he lived with over the weekend. This would be an arrangement that Melvin would continue throughout much of his life. One of these women, Janine Uvrard, met Melvin in 1963 or 64. They lived together for four years, which she describes as, quote, a fabulous, exhausting, heartbreaking experience. He shows her the manuscript for his autobiographical novel that had been rejected five years earlier. Janine helps him translate the novel into French, and with his reputation now as a writer in one of the cutting-edge French magazines, he finds a publisher, and a bear for the FBI is published in French in 1964. What does the title mean, you ask? Well, this is the opening prologue. Quote, A writer sent an article to a well-known magazine. The magazine replied, We like your article. However, we think your title, A Bear, is a little bland. Can you give us something more provocative? The writer thought and thought and finally came up with the title, I Screwed a Bear. The magazine replied, Good, but your field of appeal is limited. See if you can't work in something more general interest in it. Suggestion, undercover stories are very popular at present. The writer came up with the title, I Screwed a Bear for the FBI, and he sent it in. 
Fine, the magazine replied, very close, but the overall effect is a little paganistic, a little sacrilegious, don't you agree? At last, the writer came up with a satisfactory title. I screwed a bear for the FBI and found God. Excellent, the magazine replied, and printed the story under the heading, The Most Memorable Animal I Ever Met. Now that's a little taste of the Harakiri-style humor Melvin was writing at the time. His dedication page in the book reveals his true feelings, quote, this book is dedicated to just about everybody, except the son of a bitches who are always telling me you can't. Over the next three years, Melvin writes three more novels in French, while still writing for Harakiri. Finally, in late 1966 or early 1967, he goes to the French Cinema Center, plops a treatment on the desk for a story called La Permission, and asks for his temporary French director's card. The guy hesitates. Melvin doubles down, quote, it says here that a French writer can get a card to bring their work to screen. Aren't I a French writer? The man says, yes. With this card, Melvin was able to receive a government subsidy worth about $60,000 from the French Cinema Center, whose mission was to finance films that are, quote, artistically valuable, but not necessarily commercially viable. One of the greatest issues of American filmmaking is that there are no real government subsidies, and this is a big issue that deserves a whole other podcast, but I'm just going to leave that right here. He uses this initial investment to partner with a new production company, Office de Production, d'Edition et de Realisation. So I apologize for my terrible French. The acronym is OPERA, and they give him a $200,000 budget. He hires veteran cinematographer Michel Kelber, who had worked with filmmakers like Jean Renoir, Nicholas Ray, and Sidney Lumet. Only the producers and Kelber knew Melvin had never been on an actual film set before. The story goes like this. It's about a black American GI named Turner, who is stationed on a base in France. He hopes to get a promotion, but when looking into a mirror, his reflection mocks him and calls him an Uncle Tom. Somebody had to get promoted. Why not me? Why not you? Why are you? Because you are the captain's new good colored boy. You are the captain's Uncle Tom, baby. I'm not the captain's Uncle Tom. Well, anyway, he thinks you are his Uncle Tom. He trusts you. And you know what the captain means by trust. If he can't trust you, boss. I'll bust you or any other man I find I can't trust. Having earned his trust, Turner's bigoted captain gives him a three-day pass to leave the base prior to receiving a promotion. Turner, who is naturally a bit of a square, goes to Paris where he tries to act cool, putting on a fedora hat and a pair of wraparound sunglasses. He walks around the bustling streets of Paris, looking at women, going on tours, goes to a strip club, watches street performers, but he's lonely. So he goes to a bar, and from across the room, he sees a beautiful French girl. In his imagination, the dance floor parts like the Red Sea, and he struts toward her. Suddenly, they're frolicking in a field. Back in reality, he asks her to dance, and she politely refuses. He goes to the next table. He asks a second woman to dance. Initially, she says no, but when a partier knocks off Turner's cool guy glasses, he and the woman simultaneously kneel under the table to retrieve them, and they make eye contact and laugh. They start to flirt and dance. Her name is Miriam, and she only speaks a little English. They spend the next few hours at the bar struggling to communicate, but he manages to convince her to see him again tomorrow and go on a trip to Normandy. 
The next morning, Turner rents a car and picks up Miriam. During their ride through the country, she becomes more comfortable, sharing with him that she works at a department store, recently failed out of night school to become a teacher, and she explains that due to her ill health, her boss is always willing to give her three days off whenever she asks. They check into a hotel where the clerk awkwardly asks the couple if they want two beds or one. As Turner struggles to answer, Miriam requests one bed. They go upstairs, and after some awkward flirting, they kiss. As they lay down on the bed, Turner fantasizes about being a 17th century French aristocrat coming home to his lady-in-waiting, while Miriam fantasizes that she's being chased through the jungle pursued by black tribesmen. She's captured and brought to an altar where a tribal-clad Turner mounts her. We cut back to the hotel bedroom as the two couples look at each other and laugh. They kiss and they make love. As their black and white bodies intertwine, we see shots of protests and war and world events cut onto the screen. Later that night, they go out for a romantic meal, but when a Spanish dinner singer dedicates a song to the couple, calling them Senorita Ojos Grandes and Senor Negrito, Turner attacks him. Miriam helps Turner out of the restaurant, where he explains that the singer called him a slur. She assures him that's not what the singer meant. Turner wants to go back and beat up the singer, but Miriam pleads for him to stop and takes him back to the hotel. She tells him, quote, he was trying to give you a compliment. To which Turner says, How can anyone think that black is a compliment? The next day, Turner and Miriam go to the beach, but their beautiful day is interrupted by three white servicemen that recognize Turner and soon realize he's with a white Frenchwoman. They quickly leave. Turner knows immediately that they'll tell his captain and he will lose his promotion. Miriam assures him that they won't. Miriam and Turner spend the rest of their romantic day together. A friendly French farmer helps them make it home before it starts raining, and back at the hotel, Turner is hopeful that his colleagues maybe won't do anything to hurt him. As the lights go out, he whispers that he's never had such a good time in his life. He tells her, I love you, and she responds in French, I love you too. They promise to stay together. Upon returning to base, Turner is reprimanded by his captain for, quote, going further from the base than is allowed. He rescinds his promotion and punishes him, restricting Turner to the barracks. A church group from Harlem visits the base, and the captain assigns Turner to give them a tour. Out of gratitude, the leader, Miss Abernathy, talks the captain into rescinding Turner's restriction. Turner runs across the base, a big smile on his face. He gets to a payphone. He calls Miriam's department store, but is told she's not at work. She's out sick. Turner's face falls, and he hangs up. He walks back to the barracks and looks in the mirror. His reflection says, Baby, I could have told you. Turner says, Fuck you. He grabs a magazine and lays back on his cot as the movie fades to black. In the role of Turner, Van Peebles cast British Guianese actor Harry Baird in what would be his only leading role over a 20-year acting career. In the role of Miriam, he cast Nicole Berger, who had appeared in numerous features and shorts throughout the 1950s and early 60s, including Jean-Luc Godard's short film, All the Boys Are Called Patrick, and Francois Truffaut's second feature film, Shoot the Piano Player. Sadly, this would be her final film credit. 
Berger died in a car crash a mere 10 days after shooting wrapped. The film was shot over six weeks in March and April of 1967. This is Melvin's first time on a real film set, later saying, quote, The reason I did what I did cinematically was because I didn't know what I couldn't do. But he had been pushed around enough times to not leave an inch of doubt about who was in charge. He told the cast and crew on day one, quote, Do it my way or we don't do it. Luckily, DP Michelle Kelber was there to have Melvin's back at every turn. And through 87 minutes, this film is a crash course on camera style and innovation, borrowing heavily from the French New Wave. As one French journalist wrote of the film, quote, it's almost a manual of everything you can do with a camera. There's jump cuts, split screens, handheld, tripod. When the captain speaks, he talks directly to the lens, forcing the viewer into Turner's POV. When Miriam and Turner are getting aroused in their car ride, he uses wild jump cuts and music doubling. But no camera trick has left a bigger influence than when Turner enters the nightclub looking for love. As he walks inside, we suddenly cut to a medium close-up of Turner's face. And as Turner scans around the bar, he seems to float forward in synchronization with the camera before arriving at the bar and asking for a beer. It happens quickly, only about 15 seconds, but it is unmistakably the first ever use of the double dolly. This technique would come to be one of Spike Lee's signature shots used to great effect in Jungle Fever, Malcolm X, Clockers, Summer of Sam, Black Klansman, and many more. Now, as he did with his shorts, Van Peebles co-wrote the music for the film, working with fellow expat guitarist Mickey Baker, who also appears in Godard's Masculine Feminine. Baker appears briefly in this film performing with his band. As Turner celebrates his upcoming trip to Normandy, Melvin even debuts his unique singing voice, which will come into play much more in our next episode. No more slaving in the rain. No more boots full of mud and pain. Corn clippers for bad walking feet. A new shape of fine relief. Taste for each brother on the game. Being a film about an interracial romance, Van Peebles chooses to wade into much deeper waters of mystery and nuance. Miriam and Turner's lack of a common language both eases the relationship and complicates it. At one point on their drive to Normandy, Turner asks Miriam in French, how much for you? She gets upset. Do you think I'm for hire? You think I'm a... But does he actually mean that? Or is this simply a moment lost in translation? Van Peebles never explains it. When the Spanish singer calls him Senor Negrito, does he mean it as an insult? We're never quite sure. There are several characters, such as the hotel manager and the hay cart driver, that we expect to be some sort of racist comeuppance, but they aren't. They're just normal people. Even the sex fantasy sequences are not clear. When Miriam dreams of being chased by tribesmen, is this her actual fantasy or the fantasy that Turner imagines her having about him? We don't know. 
This skillful use of nuance within the formalistic camera work sets the story of a three-day pass apart from many of its more overt new wave predecessors. But despite all this camera trickery and analysis, what truly makes the film special is that it's just about two normal people. Turner is just a normal guy. He's a dork who's trying to be cool. He's uncomfortable dancing. He wants to find a connection. He wants to be himself separate from how others see him. This, of course, is by design. In response to decades of Hollywood's misrepresentation of African Americans on screen, Van Peebles is declaring that his film and character had, quote, the right to be ordinary. As author and scholar Raquel J. Gates writes in an essay for the Criterion release of Van Peebles' films, quote, The tensions that animate the story of a three-day pass do not arise from the kind of drama one typically finds in films about interracial relationships. There is no mob violence or dramatic ultimatums. Van Peebles chose instead to emphasize the internal psychological battles that spill out into the character's world. After filming Wrapped, Van Peebles turned his treatment into a novel and released it prior to the film. Within the book, he included a manifesto titled The Right to Be Ordinary, in which he recalls how his entire childhood had been haunted by his mother's scolding of him for not being sufficiently concerned with how he appeared. Quote, being black, I didn't have the right to be ordinary. I was obligated to be extra special good. This goes back to his fellow black classmates at Ohio Wesleyan hitchhiking 20 miles just to visit a barber. He concludes by saying, quote, Me and my characters, we will commandeer our right to live as we see fit. As if to prove his point, 1967 would be the year that the film Guess Who's Coming to Dinner was released. One studio decided to do a movie about what they were sure black audiences wanted more than anything in the world. Every Negro's secret desire. The jewel in the crown, so to speak. Intermarriage. The studio figured they had a box office bonanza. Of course, they built it as a great step forward for equality. It was about a doctor, played by Sidney Poitier, who attends a dinner at his white girlfriend's parents' house. Equality, huh? <laughs> Never mind that the black guy was a scientist, a Nobel Prize candidate, a Pulitzer Prize winning butter wouldn't melt in his mouth type who could practically walk on water, and that she was only a pimply-faced nobody. They were equally matched because she was white, right? Right. The film was nominated for 10 Academy Awards. Additionally, 1967 would be the year of the Supreme Court case, Loving v. Virginia, that ruled that all laws banning interracial marriage violated the 13th Amendment. For the first time, interracial relationships were legal by law in the U.S. As he worked on the edit, Melvin attended a party where he was introduced to a tall, well-dressed black American. They start talking, and Melvin says that he's a filmmaker. The man asks, oh, are you shooting a documentary? Melvin says, no, fiction. The man's interest has peaked. On 16 millimeter, he asks? No, 35. The man says, short film, right? Melvin says, no, feature. The man says, I haven't heard of it. What studio? Melvin says, no studio, it's French. The man can't believe it. Well, let me get this straight. You're shooting a feature length film as a French director? Melvin nods. Keep in mind, at this point in history, there has not been a black feature film director in the United States since the race films died out in the early 50s. The man says, 
Well, my name's Albert Johnson. He said, well, I'm the curator from the San Francisco Film Festival, hmm? and I'm here looking for films. I said, brother. <laughs> he said, he says, can the film be ready for the festival in October? I said, is the pig's ass pork? Is the Pope Catholic? Is cornbread crumbly? I will have it ready. Hmm? Albert Johnson, cinephile, Bay Area film legend, co-founder of Film Quarterly, goes back to the States and told no one that Melvin was black. And that's how Melvin Van Peebles was invited as the French delegate to the 1967 San Francisco International Film Festival alongside such filmmakers as Satyajit Ray and Agnes Varda. He arrives by plane to the city he had left in shame and anger nearly eight years earlier. There's a little white lady shouting, Melvin Van Peebles, Delegation Française. He walks up to her. She ignores him. She continues, Melvin Van Peebles, Delegation Française. Finally, he speaks up, I'm Melvin Van Peebles. Her jaw drops. In San Francisco, he's reunited with his children. His ex-wife even photographs Melvin, Mario, and Megan for a story in Ebony magazine. I'll post these pictures to my Instagram this week, at Behind the Slate Pod. At the festival, he is hailed as America's first black director. The progressive media writes, quote, It's a sad comment on our society when a filmmaker must gain recognition in his own country as a delegate from another. He is one of three people honored as a new director, and the story of a three-day pass is the only film shown twice at the festival. Back in France, he's hailed as a hero. The crowd at the Cinémathèque Française revel in the American embarrassment that one of their best and brightest had to go to Paris to find success. Even the hardened satirists at Harakiri were touched that one of their own could produce a film of such tender and subtle emotion. The film opened in Paris in early 1968. In America, seven major distributors bid on it, but negotiations fell through when Melvin refused to cut the line, fuck you. It was finally distributed by Sigma 3 for a limited but successful release. He was now 36 years old and hailed as the first successful black director in the United States. Brimming with adrenaline, finally on the platform he's been searching for his entire life, Melvin responded, quote, They want me to be obsessed with the racial problem. I'm obsessed with the human problem. If I'm going to make it in cinema, I'll make it on my own terms. I didn't come this far to think out, to get in the man's bag, to talk his dialect and mouth his terms. But that's easy to say when you're a poor nobody halfway around the world and a lot harder to do when Hollywood starts saying, get me Melvin Van Peebles. And cut. On the next episode, Melvin experiences the trials and tribulations of working in the studio system. The experience propels him on an odyssey of rebellion that leads to one of the most revolutionary films ever made. Oh, and by the way, he casually releases the first proto-hip-hop record in his spare time. Behind the Slate is an official podcast of the Arroyo Film Club. If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. Hit us with the five stars. It really helps us out. 
If you have any questions, comments, you just want to say hi, shoot me an email, behindtheslatepod at gmail.com. That's behindtheslatepod at gmail.com. I would absolutely love to hear from you. You can follow me on Instagram at behindtheslatepod, on TikTok at behindtheslatepod, and until next time, that's a wrap. Will you be kind?